Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons. In this episode, we talk with aeronautical engineer Clay Coons about the many applications of diesel power. Along the way, we also discuss fuel flows, gas can woes, and drinking strows. The Engineering Commons explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of field or industry. Join Adam, Brian, Carmen, and Jeff as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 126, Diesel Power, February 20th, 2017. So, Adam, do you ever work with equipment powered by diesel engines? Well, I directly have, uh, um, as we discussed a couple episodes ago, uh, purchased a, a small piece of diesel equipment, um, which I try to work with as much as possible. And, and, and which piece of equipment is that? Well, it's my little tractor, of course. Your tractor has a diesel engine? Fisher Price is pretty complicated these days. <laughs> <laughs> they wow. really stepped up their game. <laughs> <laughs> yep, 23 horse Kubota diesel engine. And and so you have to go out and buy diesel gas and supply it in a separate container uh to make sure that uh, your tractor runs properly. Well, diesel fuel, but yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, diesel fuel. <laughs> well, you can use heating oil too or vegetable <laughs> oil. Yeah, or regular gas. Any complex chain of hydrocarbons should Yeah, be. yeah. I mean, if I want my engine to blow up, right? No, I just need to adjust the mixture a little bit. Uh, That's how that works? Oh, this is like second semester electrical engineering, right? Mm. What was the reactor at the end of Back to the Future, Mr. Fusion? Is it it like one of those? You just put whatever you want in a diesel engine and it just goes? Exactly. Yeah, we have the technology. (laughs) Well, now I did discover that in high school, uh, my father had, uh, for whatever reason, did have diesel fuel uh, in a container that looked much like the gas container. And uh, we had a 1963 uh, Mercury Comet that (laughs) I had run out of gas several blocks away from home. And so I scurried home and grabbed the first thing that looked like a gas container and took it back to the car and dumped it into the car. And uh, the car continued thereafter to run for about a block (laughs) before it came to a a grinding halt uh, and, uh, you know, when all was said and done, I, I discovered that I put the wrong type of fuel into the car. So that was my first exposure to uh, the difference between uh, diesel fuel and gasoline. Yeah, <laughs> petrol, as as uh, our, our European listeners might call it. But but there was a, a, certainly a difference. I'm curious. I've always wondered what the remedy is when somebody does that. Do you have to drain the tank and flush the? Yeah, that's exactly what we did. We we had to drain the tank. Well, you only probably put about a gallon or so in there. You probably could have just filled it up with gasoline and it would have been... And made it go again? Yeah. It wouldn't have run great until all that was out of there, but it would have run. Right. <laughs> I've I've heard if you add water to diesel, it turns it into gasoline. Uh, I've never heard that. <laughs> that, that. That just sounds like a terrible, terrible, terrible idea. I would agree with that. <laughs> or sugar. Sugar works too, right? No, that does not work. <laughs> it's a pretty good Scott Punk song, though. <laughs> sugar in your gas tank, Lesson Jake. Go ahead, look it up. Does it work? 
I don't know. I'm just saying it was a good Scott Punk song. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. That's really all that matters, right, is the good tunes. So our, so our listeners may recognize uh, the voice uh, piping in there with some advice as uh, Clay Coons, who had joined us on previous episodes, uh, I believe one about travel and another about uh, engines. And so we've invited him to come back and join us once again uh, to uh, to benefit from his expertise in the world of diesel engines, uh, because there is so much equipment in this world that is powered by diesel engines. So, uh, Clay, thank you for joining us once again on the Engineering Commons. Yeah, no problem. Always enjoyed it. Well, thank you. So, uh, we had asked you on the uh, the first the first time you came on, we asked you about what got you into engineering. Uh, if our listeners want to go back and, and uh, check on that, they can certainly go back to the uh, first episode. Is there anything you wish to add or amend to your uh, to your previous comments? Um, no, um, there was there wasn't. <laughs> anything profound about it. Um, I remember when I took the uh, PSAT, there was that aptitude thing that suggested what you might be good at. And it said uh, engineering. And uh, I actually knew no engineers. All I knew is that my dad started in electrical engineering after he got out of the Navy and thought it was quite boring. So he he switched to uh, education. And uh, but I thought, well, you know, Hey, that test has to know something. So engineering <laughs> sounded good and I was good at math and I like science. So I thought I'd do that. So that's about it. Right. Nice. <laughs> I would like to have some um, uh, comments about that episode as well. If you do go back and listen to it, that was like one of the first episodes we did after all of us joined the the show and we were not mm-hmm. the charismatic radio hosts you all know and love today. So cut us some slack. <laughs> <laughs> some of us had a lot more hair. <laughs> yeah, I think I was still balding a little bit then. I may have had a little bit more, but not an appreciable amount more. So, uh, so Clay, you you went to engineering school. Uh, you graduated as an aeronautical engineer. And so, when during that process did you decide that engineering was the right career for you? I, I there wasn't a lot of self examination. Um, I I tested out of a lot of classes going into my freshman year and I started taking classes and, and I can't say I liked them all, but I didn't hate them all. And, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm usually not one to quit something I've started. So I just stayed with it. Um, you know, I never really had an epiphany when I was taking classes and thought, wow, this is just the greatest thing ever, but I didn't hate it either. So I just kept on doing it. And I liked the work more than the classes. So mm-hmm. I, I worked as a, a co-op and then a summer student at uh, NASA Lewis Research Center in Cleveland, which is now uh, John Glenn Research Center at Lewis Field. Right. Um, but I liked the stuff I was doing there, and I liked the guys I worked with. They were interesting, so I, I stayed with it. I, I never really thought about it too much. I never thought about anything else I'd rather do, and I liked what I was doing well enough. So that's about it. Nothing too deep and insightful there. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, you've, you've stayed at it for, uh, what is it, like 35 years now? Uh, yeah. This may will be 35 years since I graduated. So There you go. Pretty good. Pretty good. Well, so let us get into the world of diesel engines. Uh, and you had come on previously and explained to us uh, how various types of engines worked. And, 
my recollection is the 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 uh, sort of defining characteristic of the diesel engine is that during the compression phase, when when you've we've put the fuel into the the uh, combustion chamber, uh, usually a piston, uh, that the compression of that fuel is so intense uh, that ignition takes place due to that compression alone. You do not need a spark plug in order to ignite uh, the fuel uh, mixture. Is that true? Uh, yeah, I mean, and I'm trying to think. That's probably correct for like naturally aspirated diesel engines, which I don't know that they have too much of anymore. But typically with newer diesels, they're, they're high, press, high pressure uh, injected. And mm-hmm. so it's not like you have a fuel air mix in the cylinder that then is ignited as you come up on compression. You actually come up on compression and you inject the fuel at a high pressure into that pressurized environment and it okay. ignites automatically. Okay. So so you've got a transition as you're injecting the fuel in, you've got flame, you know, the combustion is kind of occurring on the boundaries as the fuel penetrates the air in the bowl, in the piston bowl. So uh, can I repeat back what I think you just said and see if I understand? Sure. So during the compression cycle, there's only error in the engine. It's being heated and then the fuel is injected into the heated air, correct? Correct. Okay. And when that fuel is injected, your injection timing, that kind of, that controls things such as uh, uh, cylinder pressure and uh, what the exhaust constituents are. So if you vary your injection timing, you can affect uh, the amount of CO2 or hydrocarbons or particulates or NOx with your injection timing. And a naturally aspirated engine would be one in which these cylinders themselves are, for lack of a better word, sucking in the fuel-air mixture that came off of some sort of a carburetor, right? Uh, yeah, for a gasoline engine. I think some of the naturally aspirated diesel engines would actually have uh, the fuel injected. I, I'm trying to, I, I don't know of any that suck the diesel fuel in with the air. There might've been some older okay. engines like that, but yeah, typically it's injected near the near top dead center. So then you're injecting fuel to get the combustion. There we go. Sorry to get you off path. It's just some of those things I didn't understand. Mm-hmm. I didn't quite understand. Well, it, it, it might be helpful for some of our listeners and hosts who don't know jack all about diesel. <laughs> uh, I, I have another a basic question for you as well. Um, you know, how does diesel compare to, you know, like if you get a sports car or something, they may say you have to run it like 93 octane or something because you need the higher compression ratio. Is diesel just a much higher octane ratio? And that's why you don't need a, uh, spark plug or is it a somewhat different chemical altogether um well what the the what they talk about with diesel fuel is the cetane rating not the octane rating okay and the the higher the octane rating basically you're you're checking and this is going to sound to people that know this is going to sound not very uh high tech but basically (laughs) what you're looking for is um, the octane is is how smooth it burns, but it's it's basically extremely flammable. Mm-hmm. Diesel fuel is not very flammable, but the uh, the it's more explosive. So the mixture, the air, you know, diesel fuel and air mixture is more explosive. So what you want with diesel fuel is you want it to burn 
quickly once you inject it into that cylinder. Uh, whereas with gasoline, you don't want it to burn all at once. You want it to burn more smoothly, not not all at once. Gotcha. Okay. And diesel is a longer chain hydrocarbon than gasoline, correct? Correct. Yeah, it's it's heavier, more viscous. It, you know, it feels oilier to your fingers if you if you rub them between your fingers. And is it? I, I forget. Is it uh, lighter or heavier than jet fuel slash kerosene? Um, I'm trying to remember. I th- I think it's heavier. Um, I know you can run. Uh, like as an emergency fuel, you can run jet fuel in uh, diesel engines and there's different grades of jet fuel as well. So JP4 is like a military fuel that's more flammable than say Jet A, which is uh, more of like a, a commercial type jet engine fuel or or Navy jet engine fuel because you don't want something highly explosive on aircraft carriers. No, fires at sea are bad. Yeah, <laughs> as a rule of thumb. No, isn't it also true that um, sometimes kerosene is blended with diesel to uh, to create a winter blend to to deal with gelling? Um, I think that was uh, maybe a more that was maybe something they did years ago. Um, now, um, I mean, you still have winter weight fuels, which are lighter fuels to, to kind of resist the, the waxing or the gelling of the diesel fuels. They still do that, but it's not quite as simple as mixing kerosene because now with all the emissions regulations and the high-tech fuel systems and the very tight clearances, you have to be more precise in how the fuel is, is conditioned than, it, than you used to. So it sounds like diesel's pretty versatile in terms of, you know, a, a whole engine system since it can run on everything from jet fuel to a, a kerosene blend. Yeah, and then, you know, some of them run, you know, I, I, I'm not sure about the newest diesel engines, but, you know, we used to have uh, advice on what kind of power you could expect from these different alternative fuels. And some of them even would run on like uh, heavy, like like bunker oil. As an emergency fuel, I I don't think that would work on the newest diesel engines, though. Hmm. Interesting. So, is there a reason when I go up to the to the tank uh, the pump and I fill up my car, I've got three or four different options? Is there a reason that when I go to get diesel, I've got one? Um. Well, it's, I mean, for the most part, there's not all sorts of different diesel fuels available, um, and usually. Um, you've got like your your diesel two and and diesel one, which is uh, like diesel two is your standard diesel and diesel one's your winter weight diesel. Um, but other than that, there's not too many choices. Once the the newer emissions regulations started coming out, it, they went to low sulfur fuels, and for a while there, um, you had low sulfur and regular diesel. But now the only kind of fuel they're allowed to sell in the U.S. and Canada, as far as I know, is low-sulfur diesel fuel for emissions. Hmm. And and one thing I wanted to ask about, Brian had said earlier that the air, during the compression cycle, the air was being heated. And I was, is that because of compression alone, or is there some other heating element uh, in play? Um. No, that's just uh, compression. But I mean, when you've got your um, 
your all modern diesel engines are turbocharged for like industrial or, or mining applications. Um, in some cases, it's single stage turbocharged. In some cases, it's uh, two stage turbocharged. And by by doing that turbocharging, by increasing the charge pressure through that machine, you're increasing the temperature as well. Um, typically, you go through uh, an aftercooler, sometimes an intercooler if you're two-stage turbocharged, because you want to get that, uh, you want the intake manifold temperature to be low. That way, you've got a higher density of oxygen when you go to compress. But yeah, as you compress the air, the temperature goes up. Okay. That's interesting. And uh, I always get this wrong. Turbochargers versus superchargers. Superchargers are on the belt. Turbochargers are running on the exhaust. Correct. Correct. Okay. So diesel engines have a high thermodynamic efficiency uh, and therefore good fuel efficiency. And so you mentioned earlier, Clay, that part of that is due to the fact that diesel fuel contains more energy, I'm guessing on a volume basis, than uh, gasoline. Correct. So is there some other, is there some other property of the diesel engine of the cycle that, that also makes it have this high thermodynamic efficiency? Well, also it, uh, operates at a lower speed. I mean, what's considered a high speed diesel engine is, uh, over 1500 RPM. And mm. so, uh, for like our, our mining engines, we typically run at 18 or 1900 RPM. Uh, some of the diesel engines and cars might run, uh, I'm, I'm guessing, because I haven't been in one for a while, but, you know, maybe 3,000 horsepower as opposed to a gasoline engine that redlines around 6,000 RPM. Okay. So you've got lower friction as well. Okay. And I think you said 3,000 horsepower, and I think you meant 3,000 RPM. Yes, 3,000 okay. RPM. <laughs> no, he meant horsepower. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and so is the, is it just merely this, this uh, energy capacity that makes uh, diesel engines so popular in, uh, you know, in, in applications where, where heavy loads need to be hauled? Well, there, there's a couple of things going on. One is you've got a wider uh, torque curve, which is the relationship of uh, peak torque to uh, maximum horsepower. So um, in a gasoline engine, um, when you look at a torque curve on an engine, peak torque is usually pretty close to rated speed. And, and um, you don't have, you know, relatively by speed, you don't have a lot of uh, torque rise. You don't have a lot of RPM to work with. Um, for like the diesel engines we use in mechanical drive applications, rated speed is 1900 RPM. High idle speed might be 20 200 rpm mm -hmm. and peak torque is 13 or 1400 rpm so then you've got that you know you've got about you know a third of the engine speed range where you know you can load the engine up you've got a lot of torque rise so you're still putting power as the speed comes down and uh so it's it's you've got a wider torque band to work with in your application with a diesel engine is it purely a function of the range of RPMs, the, the lower range of RPMs, and thus, you know, dividing by a smaller number? Or at idle, do um, diesel engines generate more torque? Uh, compared to like a gasoline, like an equivalent gasoline engine of the same displacement, diesel yeah. engines have more torque. 
Okay. But most of them are, are boosted as well. Now, you don't get much, you don't have any boost at low idle, but for a given RPM and a given displacement, diesel engines have more torque. Gotcha. Okay. So, in addition to uh, having this greater hauling capacity uh, by virtue of the, the, the engine and the fuel, are there any other advantages to diesel engines over gasoline engines? Well, I mean, it's pretty, relatively speaking, it's pretty simple. So if you have a, a gasoline engine that that won't start or won't run, it could be air, it could be the fuel system, it could be the electrical system, you know, you, you're not getting a spark. With a diesel engine, you've got air fuel and that's it. And if you're compressing it and you're injecting the fuel at the right time, it ought to run. So there's really not much, um, you know, there's no high energy ignition that has to take place to get it to light. Mm -hmm. So. And, and so if I, uh, as I did for uh, in preparation for this episode, I was looking at, at some uh, articles online uh, about this topic. And, and I kept coming across people saying that, diesel engines lasted longer than gasoline engines. Uh, and they said that that was because the, you know, the components of a diesel engine were more heavyweight, heavier. Uh, so why is it that we need heavier components in a diesel engine? Well, uh, part of it is the uh, cylinder pressure is, is typically higher. So you've got to have more uh, robust cylinder liner and head and, and all those connections to contain that cylinder pressure. And then with the higher torque, you've got to have stronger connecting rods and cranks and, and everything else down the line to go with it. So is there an offsetting penalty here of additional weight on a diesel engine? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there is, it's heavier. And so if, if, if you've got a car or any application and, and, and weight is a concern, a diesel engine would not be your first thought because there is a, a weight penalty compared to a gasoline engine. A good example of that would be there are very few and almost no diesel aircraft engines. Um, I'm not aware of any. I know we did. I've, do some, I've heard of a couple. Okay, we were doing some testing uh, when I was working at NASA in one of the test cells. We actually had uh, an engine that was being tested for general aviation. Uh, but as far as I know, nothing ever happened with that one. Yeah, I, I'm thinking more of experimental aircraft in terms of you know when I'm up at the EAA fly-in. I mm -hmm. think I've seen at least one diesel, but. You know, there had to be at least one pilot who just wanted to prove that he could do it. Yes, yeah, mm -hmm. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure the wings reply would too. Right. <laughs> and I'm not kidding about that. <laughs> hey, again, back to this diesel versus uh, gasoline engine comparison. If they're heavier and, and require this more, you know, mass to it, I guess then diesel engines would cost more. Yeah, I mean, uh, diesel engines are more expensive. Um, I'm, I'm trying to, so if you're looking at like, and this might be dated information, but the last time I checked for a Dodge pickup truck, for example, the uh, Cummins diesel engine option was about $6,000 more than any of the gasoline engines in that truck. Mm, okay. And that was just a, a premium on the engine. And, uh, 
In terms of uh, construction of the engine, are there any constraints on the materials? Are you, are you allowed to use aluminum in diesel engines? Yeah, I mean, there there's aluminum used in a lot of diesel engines. Um, it, uh, I'm trying to think. I'm not aware. I'm sure there probably are some, but I'm not aware of any that have aluminum blocks, but that's probably something that's being looked at. But, you know, aluminum uh, flywheel housings and oil pans and that sort of thing are certainly used, but not you wouldn't have an aluminum head. But that, but that would differentiate it from a gas engine because aren't most gas engines – uh, the blocks are aluminum. Um, I think a lot of the newer ones are, but but certainly that hasn't been. That's not always the case. That's a higher okay. price for an engine if you go aluminum. Okay. And I, I know Clay that you work in the world, uh, you know, the realm of industrial applications. But do you have any insight into the fact that uh, nearly half the passenger cars in Europe use diesel engines, whereas the number is closer to? Three percent here in the United States. Well, I think a lot of that is due to how uh, engines are taxed and how diesel fuel is taxed. So it's taxed more heavily here in the in the U.S. than it is in Europe, um, and so that drives a lot of that um, difference. Um, also, a lot of the displacements are smaller, and so you know they'll uh, you know they don't need as big a car, so they can go with a smaller engine. And mm-hmm. it's got advantages that way. Okay. Well, I had uh, recalled that that part of the problem here in the United States, uh, at least some have uh, hypothesized that part of the problem was that uh, Oldsmobile had come out with a diesel uh, option in the late 70s, early 80s. And uh, I remember that my father had one of those cars. And uh, so I remember coming back from uh, campus he had come to, to uh, campus to pick me up on a cold winter night sometime in February. And uh, on the way home, the uh, the fuel gelled in the gas tank. And uh, so we were left there sitting by the side of the road, calling the tow truck to come pick us up and, and uh, drag us back home. So the olds didn't have – that wasn't the only problem that uh, particular model had. But uh, <laughs> uh, there's some thought that uh, just the the uh, the historical memory or the residual memory of, of uh, bad experiences with the olds diesel caused – uh, diesel engines to not be as popular here in the United States as they might have otherwise been. Yeah, and my uh, my mother in law had a, a Chevy station wagon with a diesel, and I think that one was it wasn't a design from scratch diesel engine. It was I think a GM three fifty cubic inch engine that they converted to diesel, so it never was optimized. Um, and I think in most cases they were naturally aspirated. So, so if you don't if you don't boost the the intake air, whether with a supercharger or a turbocharger, um, diesel engines are pretty anemic uh, compared to a same size gasoline engine. Hmm, okay. So they were always pretty much a dog, and we had the <laughs> same experience when we borrowed my mother in law's station wagon one time. We uh, we gelled up. Um, about uh, an hour away from my mom and dad's house in Ohio with the kids and the dog and everybody else in the car. So, <laughs> But that is a issue. You would have thought they would have put a heater in the gas tank. Yes. Something to pull engine heat off and just warm the gas tank. Well, anytime you think about adding heat and one of the failure modes might be you add too much heat to a fuel tank. That's probably not desired. 
And also usually where the fuel gels is in the filter. And so what in some cases what's offered is there are companies that make uh, diesel fuel heaters that go in like the filter head or in the top of filters because where the fuel typically gels is in those uh, small flow areas through the fuel filter. And that's where uh, we tend to have a problem. Just like water in a cold house. Yep. What, one of the other differences I understand with diesel engines is they tend to be better lubricated. And again, I'm not entirely sure why it is that a diesel engine is better lubricated than a gasoline engine. Because it feels oilier, so it's it's more slippery. It's inherently a uh, two-cycle fuel. Well, I mean, you don't want, you know, when, when you inject the diesel fuel into the cylinder, um, you don't want, if the fuel hits the uh, wall of the cylinder, that's not good. Because even though it's more viscous and has, you know, better lubricity than, than gasoline, it doesn't have as good a lubricity as oil. And so um, if you're if you're over penetrating on your injection spray, um, you know, sometimes when you tear an engine down, you can, you know, if you're if maybe you put the wrong injector. So basically what you want to have happen is the piston comes up. There's a bowl pattern uh, in the top of the piston, as opposed to like a gasoline engine where the pistons are usually more or less flat. You know, maybe there's a little cutout for the valves or something. But diesel engines usually have a bowl in the top of the piston. And the idea is, is that piston's coming up. You want to inject the fuel into that bowl. And and you don't want to go so far that you impact the piston because sometimes you can see little burn holes in the piston where the fuel hits the piston. Likewise, you don't want to be having that injected fuel hitting the liner either because that doesn't that doesn't do good things when the piston rings run up and down over that. Mm -hmm. So then I, I hear all these issues about the new low sulfur diesels and lubrication problems. So is that not really an issue? Is that people overreacting or is there something else to that? No, I mean, the sulfur, the sulfur did a lot of this sort of like when they took lead out of gasoline, there were a lot of uh, things that had to be overcome in gasoline engine design. Uh, to account for the fact that that there was no longer lead in gasoline. Similarly, when you took the sulfur out of uh, diesel fuel, it had to happen for emissions. It had to happen with, uh, with the high-tech fuel systems. Um, but it also caused problems with the, um, with the lubricity of the fuel. It was no longer... Uh, it didn't have the same lubricating properties. So in high pressure uh, fuel pumps or in the injectors caused issues because of the the lower sulfur in the fuel. Okay. And so is that an issue that's been addressed in modern diesel engines and not really a problem that additives are required, so to speak? Um, yeah, more or less. I mean, it seems like there's always uh, – you know, people have different additives. You have companies that go around and say, hey, if you put a bottle of this stuff in every every time you refill your tank, you'll get 10% better fuel consumption. Or, uh, you know, so there's always some snake oil sales, salesman trying to uh, trying to sell something that will boost fuel, fuel economy. But, uh, you know, most of those issues are dealt with, you know, you, you fix the ones you know about and invariably you run into some, um, as you go along and you, you deal with those 
as they come up, like everything else. So, right. As injection pressures got higher, clearances and injectors got smaller. So, so you need to start worrying about uh, having better filtration on your diesel fuel. So, you know, maybe uh, a, a diesel engine 40 years ago might have a 25 micron or 100 micron fuel filter. Uh, now they've got three micron fuel filters. So, so you have to make sure you get all the, all the hard particles and, and dirt and everything else out of the fuel before they go through the injectors. And is that fairly common in the type of fuel you're you're likely to pump out of the local uh, uh, gas station? It depends a lot on where you are. Um, okay. In in North America, uh, yes. In Europe, yes. You know that that's all pretty common. Um, in Australia, but when you go to India or or China or parts of Africa, you know the fuel quality is. Uh, uh, less than optimum. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. And so, since we're on the uh, the subject of of diesel fuel, can you say something about the uh, uh, you know the difference between uh, types of diesel fuel, like petro diesel and synthetic diesel and biodiesel? Um, that's not really something I've paid a lot of attention to. Um, so I, I can't talk about how it's made or anything like that, but, uh, you know, I mean, there are differences in where the fuel comes from. So the diesel fuel, uh, that comes from up in Canada in the oil sands is, uh, you know, that that's like considered a quote unquote lighter diesel fuel. So it, it, it does, it's not, doesn't have as high a lubricity as your typical diesel fuel. And so that was, you know, when we started selling engines up there, that was something that, that we had to take into account. So. Okay. Now, doesn't all the oil just go to a, a refinery? How do you wind up with different diesel? I mean, if it's all going through the same process um, or my misunderstanding how, how we make gasoline and diesel fuel. Uh, I, I don't know. I'd say you'd have to have somebody that works for a oil company. Talk about that. <laughs> I can add a little bit to that. <laughs> okay. Chemical um, engineers, come on on. Yeah. <laughs> but they don't exist. Uh, <laughs> one, aside from the one we had on, um, I think there are several petroleum production techniques or processing techniques that basically allow you to synthesize various grades of fuels. Mm -hmm. So, by either breaking or or linking together hydrocarbon chains, you can you can change the blend with which you know you'll get certain fuels out of a barrel of oil. Mm -hmm. um, I think hydrocracking is the phrase for it, and I don't know if that's the old technique or the new technique. All right, so so, so the call is out for chemical engineers who can tell us what is going on. <laughs> yeah, I thought a barrel of oil is a barrel of oil. Well, I think we know one, Jeff. You could uh, maybe give him a call. I don't think he's too busy these days. Uh, yeah. I will. Uh, I will put a bug in his ear. Okay. <laughs> right. Uh, it's it's my understanding that with with hydrocarbons, I mean, at some level, that you know, I know it's complicated chemistry and process. Everything gets down to methane, and from there, you can use it like a Lincoln log to basically build any hydrocarbon you want. Mm -hmm. 
using the appropriate processes. Yeah. So that, that just further muddies my question then is if you're breaking it down to methane and building it back up, how do you get? No, you're not. They're not doing that, but I mean, just oh. in, in a larger sense. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, diesel, you know, it, as, as a barrel of oil or you have a quantity of oil gets refined, gasoline has more done to it than diesel fuel. Uh, diesel fuel is is less refined, but it's got higher energy content. Gotcha. For, so there could be unit more variability because you're not refining yeah. it as much. Okay. That and there's sense. lots of filtration that goes on. So like I said, you want to, you know, we have um, uh, requirements uh, for fuel cleanliness. And so, you know, they're only allowed, you know, so much water and, and, and hard particles of different sizes and everything else. There are, there are requirements for diesel fuel, uh, for, for the newest engines. So speaking of, uh, of cleanliness requirements and such, um, diesel exhaust fluid or DEF, what is that? What does it do? Why do we need it? Should change it every time you change your blinker fluid. <laughs> it's got the same uh, maintenance schedule. <laughs> uh, diesel exhaust fluid is uh, urea, basically. Um, so you can synthesize this yourself at home. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's it's basically uh, urea, and and so to meet emissions, there are different ways of doing it. Um, so, uh, one method, you know, so when they go through the different emission cycles, they regulate, uh, NOx and particulates and hydrocarbons, uh, CO2 and the different emission tier levels have, uh, different levels of these exhaust constituents that are permitted, um, and for the most part, you know, as we went from unregulated to tier one to, to tier two for high horsepower engines, that could all be done uh, in cylinder. So you, you know, if, if you, if you run advanced injection timing, um, that gives you better fuel economy. However, it also gives you higher knocks. And so to control your knocks, you start retarding your injection timing, uh, which uh, reduces the NOx, but also typically increases CO2. And typically when CO2 exhaust increases, you increase the amount of fuel you burn. So uh, by by reducing the NOx that was permitted, uh, basically you force the engines to become less fuel efficient because you are regulating the amount of NOx out the tailpipe. So when we go to uh, high, you know, tier three or tier four, you can no longer meet those requirements um, just in cylinder. Uh, so one method of of meeting the, the tier four requirements is called uh, cooled exhaust gas recirculation, uh, where basically uh, you take part of the exhaust um, that is the the product of combustion and you run it through a cooler. And then you take that and mix it back in with the intake air. Uh, and by burning that over, you reduce the emissions of the engine. Um, that's what uh, some companies do to meet tier four emissions. The, the result of that is, is uh, the power density of the engine is not as high because you're not burning oxygen. You're mixing in exhaust 
in with the oxygen, with the air that you take into the cylinder. So you typically have to have more displacement to get the same power. Um, also, you've got this hot exhaust gas that you're cooling with engine coolant, and all that heat has to be rejected through the radiator. So you have a higher heat rejection and a higher radiator is needed for a certain engine. Well, the other way to do this is with uh, DEF, uh, diesel exhaust fluid. And in that case, what you do is you optimize the engine for uh, CO2 emissions and particulates and hydrocarbons. So you meet all those limits in the engine, which means the NOx is higher. Then what you have is uh, an SCR unit, uh, catalytic reduction um, device on the back of the engine. It basically functions like a catalytic converter, but it needs DEF injected and mixed with the exhaust fluid in order to remove the NOx as it passed through this catalyst. And so what if you have a, an engine that has uh, a DEF tank or you have to add DEF to, basically they're using that to control the NOx output of the engine. And and just as a uh, a reference point, NOx is not like NOx of the engine. It stands for? Nitrous oxide, various nitrous oxides. And so it's um, and what's regulated depends on where you're at in the world. So in North America, EPA is concerned about CO2 and NOx. Um, as you go to other parts of the world um, where they have emissions regulations, they are typically more concerned with uh, CO2 emissions than they are with uh, NOx emissions. Hmm. Okay. And so uh, we've we've spoken uh, here a bit about uh, diesel engines and what makes uh, diesel diesel engines useful and and uh, uh, why they have certain benefits over gasoline engines. But uh, uh, sort of the the meat of this uh, this episode was to be about diesel power where where these engines were applied. So I I know that a quick tour of the literature indicates that they get. We've talked earlier about them being used in automobiles. Uh, in trucks and buses, other vehicles, uh, in diesel locomotives, on the railroads, uh, in aircraft, uh, very rarely because of the weight, but uh, it has happened. In ships, uh, there's often a big engine. In power generators, it's often used as well as in agricultural and uh, construction equipment. So there's this big range of uh, of potential applications for diesel engines. I'd just be curious, Clay, in in uh, in some of the applications you've seen in your, your experience uh, working in the, uh, the diesel power industry and, and uh, which you thought were maybe the most interesting? Um, in my mind, it's always the things that move. Um, so I have worked primarily with, with mining equipment. Um, and so, uh, you know, you have trucks and excavators and front end loaders um, that are all all moving and doing things. So the excavator or the front end loader is is working uh, at the face and it's uh, loading the trucks and the trucks, uh, you know, take that to the crusher. And and, and so it, to me, that's more interesting because things are moving. Mm -hmm. um, I know a lot of people, you know, a lot of people grew up real interested in uh, railroads and, and locomotives. I, I was never... 
I mean, I you like them. Every little kid likes trains, but uh, <laughs> that was about it for me. But, you know, some people uh, really like working on uh, rail cars and, and locomotives. Um, and in my mind, you know, that's constrained operation because you have to stick to the track. I like things that have, uh, <laughs> you know, freedom of movement. Right. Uh, but the one thing, the one big advantage is we were talking about is engine life. And so if you think about an on-highway truck, um, anymore, pretty much a standard diesel engine life in an on-highway truck is a million miles between Jeez. overhauls on the engine. So you'll never get that. You know, I don't even know what a comparable life on a gasoline engine would be. So, you know, and then for like a, a mine truck. Uh, with a modern diesel engine, it's not uncommon to get twenty-five to thirty thousand hours on a diesel engine before it requires rebuild. And so, um, you know, in in a mining application, you can typically get six thousand to seven thousand hours a year. So you're talking, uh, you know, four to five years, and in some cases longer than that before you're required to to rebuild the engine. So so any gasoline engine would not have near that kind of life to it before you'd have to rebuild it. Right. And and so in these uh these trucks that you're dealing with, you had earlier mentioned uh horsepower. What kind of what kind of horsepower are these big trucks using? Um the the horsepower changes with the the rating of the truck. Um, and so typically for, for like a hundred ton truck, a truck that could, could haul a hundred tons, um, and your typical pickup truck, uh, just for frame of reference is a half ton. Mm -hmm. Um, so a hundred ton truck typically has a 1000 to 1200 horsepower for the engine. My goodness. And then the biggest trucks, um, that would be, you know, 400 tons or so carrying capacity. Those engines are usually about 3,500 horsepower. Wow. And, and so what kind of size uh, piston goes on something like this? Um, this isn't a very visual medium, so I'm holding my hands <laughs> here for how big the pistons are. Um, I, if I had to, I'm trying to... To think, I really that's something I don't have off the top of my head, but the pistons are probably on the order of uh, seven inches in diameter. Okay. So the displacement, so um, the company I work for, the largest displacement engine currently used in mining is a 78 liter displacement. That's, that's pretty healthy. Yeah. So, so yeah, that, that's a, <laughs> that's a good sized engine. If you think about your, uh, your typical Chevy 350, I think that's like uh, 5.7 liters. So this is uh, 78 liters. And and so we hear a lot about uh, driverless cars coming along. Have you worked at all with the uh, driverless trucks where uh, they're sort of fully automated? Um, that's something that is becoming more popular. Um, from an engine standpoint, it's really not very different. And so most of the, uh, some of the, the first um, autonomous trucks were more or less a typical truck that an operator would drive, except they, uh, they automate 
certain functions. Excuse me. Now they've um, just started coming out with uh, specifically designed autonomous trucks. And a lot of the controls is over uh, J1939 data link for the engine and communication back to the vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's be, it's becoming more popular. Um, there are uh, several mines operating with autonomous trucks. Uh, so far, I've not heard about or seen any autonomous loading equipment. So the front end loaders or the excavators, uh, those still have operators. It's just the trucks that uh, that they've automated. Um, and one mine I was at last year said, when you do that, you've got a whole nother set of issues you have to deal with. And so um, when you have uh, an automated truck that runs the same program, every truck breaks at the same spot and every truck turns at the same spot. And mm-hmm. so they tend to break the road down because you're getting that scrubbing motion of the tires in the exact same spot every time. Yeah. And you're braking in the same spot every time. So they found they had to do uh, more work um, on the road maintenance, you know, to, to address those sorts of issues. Because when you have uh, human operators, they don't all drive the same. And even the same operator isn't always going to turn at the exact same spot or break at the exact same spot. So so there's kind of a, a dithering built in that uh, <laughs> accounts for that, that you don't have when you automate things. Cool. I want to work on the anti-dithering. <laughs> the, the other thing that you find is that uh, you know, a big drive for the mines, well, all customers, but mines, especially when fuel prices were higher, is uh, they started uh, banging the drum for improved uh, fuel economy. Mm-hmm. Um, which wasn't the case when a lot of these applications were under development and we were doing the prototype testing and everything. It was all about performance, you right. know, as much power, as fast as you can give it to us for as long as you can give it to us. And fuel economy was kind of a nice to have, but you weren't going to sacrifice it if it meant you were losing productivity. And then when fuel prices went up over $4 a gallon, then there was a lot of interest in in improving fuel economy. And uh, one of the things, you know, you can work on the engine rating and the integration of the engine into the truck and, and all those things. But what you find is that the operator, how the person driving the truck drives that truck, you know, is he... Is he on and off the throttle really hard? Is he braking hard? Is he accelerating harder than he has to? That can have a huge impact on fuel economy. Mm-hmm. In fact, it can be make a 20% difference in the fuel economy of a truck. Wow. Or more. And so when you go automated, you can automate for highest efficiency or automate for highest productivity and so then you've got control over how those trucks are being operated and reduce the variation you get from different operators. Hmm. Interesting. And, and so is the diesel engine market largely driven by the, the cost of oil? Um, in mining, which is what I know the most about, 
is there's a number of factors, but it's it's the the cost of oil, but it's primarily the uh, commodity cost of what's being mined. Uh-huh. So so when you know the price of copper is high, or the price of iron is high, then they want to get as much of that out of the ground as fast as they can. And mm-hmm. when the price starts going down, they've got fixed costs. And and when their costs exceeds um, what they can make selling the ore, they basically shut down. I mean, the last several years have been very difficult in the mining industry. Um, a lot of mines have been uh, parking equipment. Uh, they've been putting off engine rebuilds or equipment rebuilds uh, because the commodity prices have been down. And if they park a truck, what they might do is run a truck until the engine needs to be rebuilt. And then instead of rebuilding that engine, they'll just park that truck and pull another truck out that has fewer hours. And mm-hmm. so they've been, you know, sweating their assets, trying to to get everything they can while spending the least amount of money possible. Um, now commodity prices are starting to recover some. Um, and as those commodity prices recover, they'll start wanting to bring more equipment back online. And this equipment that hasn't been maintained as well as it has been in the past or things they've been putting off, now they're going to need to to buy equipment, which means they'll be buying engines for that equipment. Which makes certain employers very happy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but there's been a lot of consolidation in in the mining business so a lot of mines have uh you know sold off different mines whether you know some companies you know big large uh mining conglomerates have been selling off their coal mines or or selling off their uh their lower profit mines in order to focus on the ones that that maintain a high profitability mm-hmm so, right, and and so you mentioned uh, parking trucks, and I'm sort of curious. I know you know if you park a gasoline engine, then then you know the all the oil drain out of the cylinders, and you need to be a little careful about starting it back up. And uh, so, are diesel engines more rugged in this sense? Do you do you have to worry less about starting a, a diesel engine back up after it's been sitting for several months? Um, well, if, if you're going to park it and not turn it over at all for, for several months or a year or what have you, there are certain things you're supposed to do to, to condition the engine before you do that. In many cases, that's not done. Um, and then a lot of it is merely, uh, most, uh, most big diesel engines have some sort of, uh, pre-lubrication pump on them, mm-hmm. uh, which, uh, basically has an electric motor circulating oil until you reach a certain uh, pressure in your oil rifle on the engine. And so in some cases, the recommendation is to run uh, multiple uh, pre-lube cycles without starting the engine just to make sure you get the oil circulated throughout the engine. And then when you start it up, just let it idle you know, for several minutes to make sure everything is, is working before you start loading the engine up. Right. Okay. Well, so so it doesn't sound like there's a huge difference between restarting a diesel engine and restarting a gas engine. No, I mean, there's as long as the engine turns over and you're getting fuel, it's going to start. Um, so you don't have all the electronic things to worry about that you do with gasoline engines. 
But other than that, it's similar. Right. So you 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 said earlier you talked about the fact that that a diesel engine doesn't need the uh, the ignition, so you don't have to have the the complexity of of the spark plug and and timing the spark that kind of stuff. But you did talk about the fact that the the point of injection uh, was very important for controlling emissions. So is is the modern diesel engine any less complex? I would think that there must be a great deal of uh, computing power going on trying to uh, adjust everything to make sure that that uh, you maintain power but uh, kept emissions within uh, specification. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the modern engines have uh, all sorts of uh, temperature and pressure sensors uh, and everything else. And then you'll have, depending on the engine, uh, you'll have timing marks on the cam or the crank or someplace else uh, to make sure that uh, fuel is injected um, at the proper time. Uh, some engines even have um, a, uh, a sensor on, like, the, say, the number one cylinder uh, to uh, kind of uh, uh, closed loop control on injection timing. Mm. So, so yeah, I mean, it, it, that is very complex. The fuel system for a diesel engine, a modern diesel engine is very complex. Um, so it's, it's not true that diesel engines are, are, you know, dumb relative to gasoline engines. Uh, but from a, uh, from a starting and running standpoint, they're not as complex. Okay. And, and so any other diesel applications that you've seen that you said, boy, that is a crazy place to put a diesel engine? <laughs> um, no, um, and, and not really. But one of the things I, we were, Cummins was kind of out of the market for a long time in, uh, in the oil and gas market frack rigs. And when that started becoming a big thing, I was uh, a little bit involved uh, as we were getting back into the market just because I had experience with uh, engine controls and engine testing. And that was something that I'd never heard of that I found pretty interesting. Although, like I said, my preference is for things that move. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> while it was interesting, it was interesting for a limited amount of time to me. <laughs> right. I, I can understand. Uh, and, and, you know, Marine, um, I haven't been involved. I've answered some questions and helped some people with Marine questions. Um, and same thing. I find it interesting, but everything is uh, by necessity at sea level. So in mining, you know, we've got, you know, applications running, thousands of feet underground for underground mining to 17,000 feet above sea level. So there's a whole range of, uh, of different conditions you have to uh, account for and work with when you're operating at these different altitudes. Right. Right. And you've mentioned in a previous episode that uh, uh, also it's some fairly extreme temperatures. Uh, yes. I mean, <laughs> it, it, you know, down to, I know there's, uh, mines operating when it's minus 50, minus 60 degrees. So, and at the bottoms of some of these pits or an underground mines, it can be, you know, 120, 130 degrees in the bottom of the pit. So. Well, and these are degrees Fahrenheit for international listeners. Yes. Well, <laughs> minus 40, it doesn't matter. So. Oh, that's right. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's cold either way. Yes. That's right. Well, we should uh, probably think about wrapping this up. But uh, before we uh, before we say goodbye, we have in past episodes uh, asked about uh, any interesting beers you might have come across in in your recent travels because you do from time to time end up traveling the globe to uh, to deal with these diesel engines. Anything you've come across recently that has uh, met with your favor? Um, I, I can't think of too many specific brands. About a year ago, I was in um, Scotland and England for a couple of weeks. And I really like the uh, cask ales, uh, you know, the hand-drawn ales over there. Um, I'll second I think, that one. I think that would be my preference uh, every time for a beer if I had that opportunity. <laughs> um, and, you know, they, they talk about how British beers aren't cold. It's more like cellar temperature, but it doesn't have to be as cold because it tastes so good. So. <laughs> Um, but other than that, I mean, I'll, I'll pretty much drink, uh, anything that's put in front of me. So I'm not, I'm not super particular. I am looking forward to, uh, Yingling being available in Indiana, but I haven't seen it yet to be honest. So. Right. So that's a, uh, for our international listeners, that's a beer that's been, uh, is it the oldest brewery in the United States? Continuous operating brewery? Yes. Yes. And that's, that's in Pennsylvania. And so, uh, for a long time it was available only in the I believe the Philadelphia area and uh it's they're slowly expanding. So here in the state of Indiana where Clay and I live, uh it's supposed to be coming to a liquor store near us soon. But uh no other as far as what I you know, I I go through various uh boring domestic beers generally at home here. So it just kind of depends what I get a uh what I get a hankering for. So Often it's uh, Miller High Life, just because that was a beer my dad always drank, and so when I'm feeling <laughs> nostalgic, I'll uh, I'll buy a case of that. So I, I seem to remember that being the uh, beer of choice during uh, the college years. Uh, that and Stroh's, and actually, <laughs> I, I drink Stroh's some too. So what in the heck is a Stroh's? Never heard of that one before. Uh, you never heard of Stroh's? That's a Detroit beer. Ah, okay, cool. I'll have to check it out if I'm ever up there. They serve it at the airport? Oh, I would think so. Uh, it's not the same as it used to be. I mean, the Strohs back when uh, Jeff and I were in college was, they, they always called it fire brewed. And it had kind of a distinctive taste. But uh, it's been, I think Strohs Brewer is bought by Miller. And so now it, it tastes closer to a Miller than what the old Strohs used to taste like. Gotcha. Well, I'll keep an eye out. You never know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Clay, uh, thank you so very much for uh, coming on and, and uh, educating us a bit more about diesel engines and, and applications of diesel power. Oh, you're very welcome. It's always fun. Thanks a lot, Clay. Okay. Talk to you guys later. Bye. Good evening. Bye. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our musical introduction is by John Trimble and our concluding theme by Paul Stevenson. <laughs>